this edition of Create the Village. I think within the next election cycle, you're going to see similarities to what Stacey Abrams and her team were able to do in Georgia replicated in those other states. My name is Egbert Perry. I'm the CEO and founder of The Integral Group, a real estate company that focuses on creating value in cities and rebuilding the fabric of communities. This is Create the Village, a podcast about the intersection of public policy and community development. Well, this is absolutely like old home week here. Um, And so I want the audience to know that there is history between our guest today and, and me goes back many, many, many years. We're dating ourselves when we say that. But I, I first met Hollis Towns in the late 1990s uh, when he was a reporter and editor with the AJC, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And when we met, he was a beat reporter covering, among other topics, housing. Specifically, uh, he was chronicling the affordable housing transformations that were on the way in Atlanta and many of those I I had some involvement with. So he was covering what we today refer to as the intersection of public policy and community development. In the end, Hollis was writing what seemed like daily on the development of mixed income, mixed finance, community development, as the concept was being birthed. And at the time, Integral, my firm, was partnering with the Atlanta Housing Authority to create what has come to be known as the Atlanta model. Hollis started with the AJC, I think in 1987, as a young cub reporter and recent graduate of Fort Valley State University, also known as Georgia's number one public HBCU. (laughs) Um, He left the AJC in 2000, and today he is with Gannett, the large media company and publisher of USA Today. Until recently, um, Hollis was actually Gannett Atlantic's regional editor. But late last year, he was promoted to highfalutin job as a second-in-command in in the local news division for USA Today Network. Uh, So he has a great trajectory, great career and track record. As vice president of um, local news initiatives and regional editor, Uh, Hollis oversees several media regions and helps set the strategy and priorities for the USA Today local news division. He works closely with the newsrooms and their leaders on a daily basis, essentially guiding news coverage. Among his colleagues, he is known as an ambitious journalist who aims to right wrongs and expose wrongdoing. So he is the heart and soul of what we think of when we think of the old-style journalists. Hollis um, joined Gannett in 2004 as managing editor of the Cincinnati Inquirer. He spent 10 years as editor of the Asbury Park Press in New Jersey. Hollis, I, I, I said a lot there, and there's a lot in there to talk about, but did I miss anything from your bio or about how we first met that you think is useful for the audience to know? No, not, not at all. I, I couldn't have said it any better myself if I had written it. So, okay. oh wait, I did. 
<laughs> so, so, no, Egbert, thank you so much uh, for the introduction. And I just want to say that uh, I've enjoyed watching you and the integral group and the work that you've done over the years transforming public housing and private public partnerships across Atlanta. And it's, it's, a, it's been a storybook story in a lot of ways because it's now a model for the rest of the country. And I'm proud to say that I was on the ground floor of that coverage when it was happening in Atlanta and ultimately became a model for other cities to follow. No, thank you, Hollis. And, and quite frankly, I want the audience to know that the relationship and the mutual respect is genuine because we started out and when we started, it wasn't quite clear, okay, so what exactly are these guys doing with this community development stuff? And uh, Hollis was writing and initially not critical as much as inquisitive. Well, let me understand what's really going on here. I'm not going to do any patting on the back for a while. You're, you're being generous, Egbert. It, it also was very critical. Yes, so you're, you're there, right. There were days when, when, when Rick would reach out to me, Rick White would reach out to me and say, when are you going to write something positive, my friend? That's right. Uh, and so, yeah, there were, there were some hard-hitting pieces in between some of the other things. So you're being nice. And, and I admired the fact that the work was genuine, the results were real, and the concern was also genuine. So over time, we actually developed a love for the work that was being done, and we probably both helped each other uh, back in those days. So now let's do, um, by the way, I don't know if you know, Hollis, but in 2018, at our annual, our 25th anniversary, Integral's 25th anniversary, Secretary Cisneros, Henry Cisneros, came and spoke, and he made, he was a keynote speaker, and he made the comment, and I didn't know this, that there are 254 developments or communities across the country that are now using the model that we created. I had no idea until he said it, and so wow. it made me feel pretty good, but you were there in those early days when we were trying to make it up as we went along. I, I absolutely was, and congratulations to you and, and, and Renee Glover, who was the head of the Atlanta Housing Authority at the time, and you know the partnership that you all forged, she was unwavering in her support of that public-private partnership, which was unheard of in those days. And, That's you right. know, That's Secretary right. Cisneros but, lauded you even then uh, when you were getting those grants to, to help make those developments hap happen. So uh, those were good days in terms of transformative leadership and a vision that also ultimately was transformative. Yeah, no, thanks again for that. Well, look, so today, you know, you're here because you're a muckety-muck in the... <laughs> whole media space. And so I noticed that you, you recently authored a story in USA Today that caught my attention. And the story was titled, From Southern Law to Diverse Community, Georgia's Changing Political Makeup. Uh, so we're going to post it on our social media so listeners can read it for themselves. But the story was in the lead up to the Georgia Senate runoff that was held on January 5th which now seems like months ago, I was interested in the story because it provides some incredible insight to the last two decades in Georgia. I think you would agree the Georgia you left in 2000 is not the Georgia you reported on in 2020. 
Well, thanks for that. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, the you know, I got a call from my editor, uh, my supervisor, the senior vice president of the news division. Uh, it was right on the end of, of a story that run that showed that uh, Joe Biden was beginning to take the lead over President Trump. And so the question became, don't you still own a house in Atlanta in, in that area? And I said, yes. Would you mind going down and writing a first person piece uh, about what's going on in the shifting demographics in Georgia? Now, that seemed like a fairly easy assignment from an old journalist who's been around the block a couple of times, but I was petrified because I had not written a story in a number of years. And if you want to say rusty, I was as rusty as they come. Uh, but within a few minutes after landing in Atlanta, I, I immediately went to work and had an opportunity to talk to quite a few people uh, in Clayton County, in Henry and across the region. And while I knew the city was changing and the region were changing rapidly from the time that I had left in 2000, I really was blown away at the size uh, and the seismic shifts that have happened uh, in the metro Atlanta area. Uh, I knew Clayton was changing, and so I spent that three days there uh, as an opportunity to interview uh, former neighbors in my old subdivision, uh, friends and colleagues and coworkers to get a sense of what's happening in Georgia. Uh, and what I found in that story was some of the old uh, pressures and strains that were in place 20 years earlier were still at play. Uh, there was still white flight happening in Clayton County where folks were heading over to Henry and ultimately Fayette. Uh, there was still uh, changes happening in the Buford Highway area uh, where immigrants were settling because of uh, inexpensive housing that they could get there along the corridor. Uh, and, and as well, that those changes are happening significantly in Gwinnett County uh, and even Cobb and South DeKalb. And so that story was an effort to try and understand what was delivering Georgia to Joe Biden, uh, the political changes that were happening because there were more younger people, uh, more brown people, more black people that were moving into the metro area from other regions of the country. Uh, and that had a cumulative effect of shifting the political mores, if you will, uh, in Metro Atlanta. And so the story was an opportunity to examine that from a first person perspective. And so it, it was a fascinating uh, uh, look for me to, to talk to folks in the region again and to find out what's happening. I even tracked down some old neighbors. Uh, I found one of my old neighbors that I lived next, lived next door to me who had moved to Henry County uh, she had been on the school board in uh, Clayton County and left just as I was moving in within that first year. I found her now down in Monroe County, which wow. is south of uh, Henry County, as you well know. Uh, and, uh, you know, she characterized it as, you know, finding a better, nicer house uh, in Monroe County. But she originally had moved to Henry uh, and so I, I suspect that she wasn't being genuine uh, in that answer. Uh, I, who knows? She didn't want to be used in the story, and so I couldn't convince her. Uh, but uh, being in Monroe County for her, 
uh, was to get more countryside, she said. She, she wanted more fresh air. And so I took her at her word, and, and that's an example. But uh, I, I do wonder and have wondered ever since, you know, was that the real reason she left Henry? She certainly saw what was happening in Clayton, and now she's uh, put down roots in Monroe County. Hmm. Sounds like she's in the middle of a South migration. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, so it, I have cer a set it certainly of seems so. <laughs> yeah, I have a set of questions that are sort of all related, but for context, as vice president of local news initiatives and as a regional editor for Gannett, you you oversee several media markets. So your perch, I would say, is probably unique. And it gives you a unique perspective. And I'm curious to know what you're seeing at the macro level across other markets. So regarding shifts in demographic, economic, and political affiliations, first, is Georgia unique? Are you seeing similar demographic shifts in other large metropolitan centers? Are you seeing a regional southern phenomena? Or is there something larger that's going on? A great question, Egbert. It's it's all of the above, actually. You know, when we took a look uh, across our markets, uh, many of those markets, we have large publications in the Northeast in Ohio. The old line used to be that the road to the White House ran through Ohio. We own the Columbus Dispatch there as one of the publications in Florida, Jacksonville and Palm Beach and, and others, North Carolina. And so Georgia is not unique uh, in that sense. What happened in Georgia was Georgia is further along than, say, North Carolina or Florida or Texas or some of the other states because of the demographic shifts that are happening that I'm seeing across my other regions as well. And so when you look at North Carolina, for instance, in the notion that uh, President Trump won the state by only a couple of percentage points, you're seeing the same kind of demographic shifts around Greensboro and Raleigh-Durham and Charlotte in Winston-Salem. Uh, and so we think that by the next election cycle that North Carolina will be similar to Georgia. Uh, the same in Texas where around Austin and Dallas-Fort Worth and Houston where there is substantial growth, uh, those newcomers tend to be uh, brown, African-American and Hispanic. And so that growth that you're seeing with the demographic shifts is being perpetuated by folks who typically vote blue or democratic. In the Rust Belt and places like Wisconsin where we own the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel as one of our publications, uh, it's more of a coming home effect more so than it is a demographic shift. And so that was, these folks didn't vote for Hillary Clinton uh, in the last cycle and came home to, to Donald Trump uh, or to, to uh, from Donald Trump on to, to Joe Biden in this last election. The Northeast has always been stable. It's a reliably blue area, although there are contours in New Jersey uh, where I am based uh, that is deeply red. And the county where I live, Ocean County, uh, went 78% for Donald Trump. Uh, and so it's a deeply red area and, and it's one of the aspects. Uh, again, if you look out in California or out west in Arizona, which flipped as well, uh, those areas are seeing growth in the Phoenix area and Maricopa County. Uh, we've got reporters that, that were on the ground there 
talking to folks about what was happening in that area. So I think the, the, the dynamic is similar to Georgia in the sense that what drove the growth or what drove the changes in Georgia, what's been driving those changes, uh, have been in migration of newcomers from other places. They've been younger and they tend to vote blue. And we're seeing that replicated uh, in North Carolina. We're seeing that in the suburbs of, of Phoenix. We're seeing that in the suburbs of, of Houston and Dallas-Fort Worth and Austin. And so I think within the next election cycle, you're going to see similarities to what Stacey Abrams and her team were able to do in Georgia replicated in those other states. Wow. That, yeah, so, so it really does feel like we just at the tip of the iceberg, and that's that's not a perspective I really had. So, as I said, you have a unique perch because you can see it playing out. You can see other markets evolving or growing up to be in the place where Atlanta or Georgia was this this time around. So, a related set of questions. This is a follow up. Are you seeing differences with transitions that are occurring? So. Are some regions adapting more fluidly than others? Are other regions finding it difficult to make the change in demographic realities work? And I know with that must be some social anxieties. Yeah, you know, a lot of that pressure, and it's been around for a while, is, is down in Florida, where there is a distinct difference between the Cuban population and the traditional Hispanic population that are populating South Florida. And so there's a disagreement. Typically, uh, Cuban Hispanics have been conservative in nature, and uh, Hispanics uh, from Mexico and other places have uh, brought, uh, voted more democratic. We're seeing that in, in Texas, in, in places in as well as in Oklahoma and in the suburbs of, of Phoenix. And so those pressures exist there, and that was the reason that was thinking that Donald Trump was going to lose Florida when, in fact, he pulled it off uh, quite successfully because there was a strong uh, turnout of Cuban-Americans uh, who supported his agenda. But nothing in the way of, of pressures that, you know, would rise up to what uh, would be considered, you know, racial issues or, or problems along those lines. Uh, there are issues of power that's happening in places uh, like Louisville where as you probably know, Erica Shields was just named the That's new right. uh, yes. police chief there. Uh, the Louisville Police Department has been operating under a consent decree for a number of years uh, because of past policing pr practices. And there's always been a lot of tension in that community uh, with the black community because of their policing practices. And so uh, that's been a longstanding problem that the past administration uh, in Louisville had promised to clean up, but didn't. And so a lot of the Breonna Taylor concerns, a lot of the, the protest and, and the anger that came from the community uh, actually was, was long form. It had been around for years and was brought to a head by her killing. And so those are a couple of examples. Obviously, you, you know, Eric Garner in, 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 in New York and some other places, uh, but I think those are two of the best examples of where communities are seeing flashpoints or pressure points based on treatment uh, either by authorities or by police in, in their uh, 
not necessarily supporting the conservative approach to problem solving that historically may have been in place in those communities. Okay. So, so then let's turn back to Georgia and uh, specifically on the January 5th special election. <laughs> what does the election say about the change in population? Not, not about the partisan horse race, okay? So the R and the D have just sort of taken on a, a level of symbolism that's probably way outsized and, and results in a lot of tension that really doesn't even need to exist. But in the 24 hours before the polls closed, many analysts thought it was very likely that we would go one and one, one Republican, one Democrat. And that's what would be heading to the Senate for Georgia. Uh, to the surprise of many, I included, Democrats picked up both seats in Georgia, put in the Senate in a 50-50 split with obviously our Vice President Kamala Harris as the deciding vote. So again, from your approach, what's your sense of how they're viewing Georgia following the election of two Democrats and in fact one African American and one Jewish? And how do you think readers across your enterprise think those two Democrats won the statewide election in Georgia? Great question, Edward. I, I will tell you unequivocally, being in the New York DMA, that the impression of Georgia has changed from a backwater, racist Southern state uh, that did a lot of things wrong to one that people view differently now because of this election. I have had countless conversations with folks in this area about my home state, folks who have dialed me up or sent me text messages and saying, wow, I've got to give Georgia a second look. I never would have thought in a million years that black people down there and brown people down there uh, and whites uh, down there would have gone to the polls uh, and elected two Democrats uh, to give control of the U.S. Senate to Democrats. And so I think the net effect has been exceptionally positive for the state of Georgia in that the public relations around this take away your partisanship and just look at it on the face uh, of a 33-year-old of a Jewish guy uh, in Ossoff and a 51-year-old African-American preacher taking the election and, and winning uh, to go to Washington to, to serve as the two senator-elects from the state of Georgia, a, a state that historically uh, has found avenues to impede the opportunities of, for African-Americans and others. And then when you think about the whole history of the runoff system itself, which was conceived as a racist policy in the beginning, and that these two guys overcame that and still won by a healthy margin, speaks volumes about the progress that Georgia has made. And so I, for one, my politics aside, uh, am extremely proud that, that the state is, is moving progressively in a different direction and is being open-minded by having elected uh, folks of different religion and different races uh, to uh, the Senate to represent the people of Georgia. Well, and so we sort of can pat ourselves on the back about the progressiveness that came out of Georgia. But before we do that, and I have a long lead up to a question. So 
just bear with me a second here, but I want to shift then to the not-so-progressive and turn our attention to the events in D.C. Uh, the day after the Georgia special election. So you have uh, this guy, Brandon Fellows. He, he says he participated in the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. He admits to breaking into a senator's office, placing his feet on the senator's desk, smoking marijuana, posting images to his social media accounts, etc., etc. He said he intends to return to Washington for Joe Biden's inauguration and predicts there will be some more violence. Fellows told Bloomberg this week that he lives in an old school bus in upstate New York and supports himself by cutting trees and repairing chimneys. When asked to reflect on life since the insurgents, he said since posting pictures of himself at the Capitol, his profile on the Dayton app, Bumble, is, quote, blowing up. In another story about one of the more recognizable rioters, the New York Post reports that Jake Angeli, the so-called QAnon shaman, and most recognized as the bare-chested, furry-horn, hat-wearing man in the federal custody, is in federal custody, uh, but refusing to eat. In an interview at the Post, his mother says her son is a vegan and must be supplied with an organic diet while in federal custody. Okay? Meanwhile, the FBI reports that so-called citizen militia groups participated in the taking of the U.S. Capitol. Firearms, ammunition, bombs have been seized. Many of the rioters were wearing body armor. And the story unfolded on television. Viewers heard chants and calls for hanging of the vice president and the death to the Speaker of the House. Viewers saw live images of the police officer being beaten and dragged to the ground. Rioters breaking into Speaker Pelosi's office and the construction of gallows, can you believe it, on the Capitol grounds. To date, five people are reported dead in connection with events at the Capitol. Much of the reporting to date um, has portrayed the rioters as eccentric, naive, misguided. At most, they're being characterized as Dick's sporting goods, camo-wearing weekend warriors. So far, no single rioter, as far as I've been able to find, is being portrayed as a clear and present threat to our democracy or governmental system. So, here we go. As a former reporter and now a media executive, what difference do you see in how rioters like Jake Angali, the vegan, and Brandon Fellows, the dating app guy, are profiled when compared with the media portrayal of Breonna Taylor, Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, and countless others? I tell you, man, that's the toughest question that you've asked so far, and, and the one that gives me the most pause. But my attempt at answering that question is is is, is bifurcated in, in the sense that I do believe that the broadcast media, radio and television, uh, have taken a different tact than, say, the print media has. And so when you look at conservative media, uh, you look at Fox News or Breitbart or, or Newsmax or any of those channels, Rush Limbaugh, 
they have uh, gone out of their way to describe Trayvon Martin as, as a dope smoking individual and, you know, Breonna Taylor, you know, had it coming uh, much more egregiously than what you've seen uh, in the print media. That doesn't necessarily give the print media a pass. I think the print media's uh, failures have been close to not being as aggressive as the conservative media has been in pushing back. Uh, the, cons the print media is typically more constrained. A more recent example of that would be the bombing, which I would call a suicide bombing uh, in downtown Nashville, where I led some conversations with the editor and others as to why that wasn't called domestic terrorism. If it were Muslim uh, or someone else uh, from uh, our Arab community, uh, would a designation been assigned much more quickly as to uh, what happened with that as domestic terrorism? And so I think that the polarization of our media coverage from the shots of the shops like CNN that tries to play it down the middle or the more that's to the left, which would be MSNBC or to the right, Fox and Breitbart and others, people gravitate toward these outlets where their personal beliefs are reinforced. And so what happens on broadcast media and, and it has happened in print media is a reinforcement of that position. And I don't think that's good. I think that's hurt our industry. I would be a stern believer in bringing back the fairness doctrine if, if they were to ever consider that. Uh, but I do think there's work to be done uh, on all sides. And, and I certainly think uh, as someone who represents the, the print digital media from our newspapers and our websites, uh, that we have not done enough to portray folks like Breonna Taylor and Eric Garner and Trayvon Martin more fairly in the initial days of coverage. Ultimately, over time, if you look at that coverage, it pans out and it evens out and it ultimately does offer a fairer view. But the initial uh, uh, outlooks oftentimes are quite biased. And I run a committee within the company that looks at those kinds of issues with others uh, on our diversity committee. And uh, it's something that we talk about all the time how do we get those biases out of our coverage and cover our communities of color and, and other aspects of it much more fairly than we've demonstrated in the past? That's, that's deep. So, so does that mean that does the print media have a higher obligation to than television and radio? I mean, to keep it honest? I, I, I do. I believe it does because, you know, people quickly forget what happens on television because of the medium. They never forget what they read in the newspaper or they see on a website. And so uh, they get upset and they get enraged by, you know, coverage. They get they get enraged by the way we portray things. I got a, a phone call the other day of a voicemail uh, from a reader upset about our story that said that Donald Trump incited the riot. Well, this guy uh, said he's going to assassinate Joe Biden if he were a violent man. Uh, obviously, we pass that along to the police, but that's the type of passion and that type of anger and vitriol that comes from the public that we hear, see, and feel every single day uh, about this election and about the politics and the polarization that's happened in this country. 
and, and I hope that the, the, the incoming administration is able to deal with this much more aggressively uh, than, than the past administration did, which fueled a lot of this sentiment and anger of, of fake news uh, and the fake news media uh, that has led to a lot of what you saw happen in Washington last week. Okay, so, so I'm going to go to a last question. Um, but before I get to my last question, there's a thought that's come into my mind. Is there any difference in equity of resources and editorial tone that drove that rush to judgment in the way in which certain people are characterized as contrasted with others? Is that a resource issue? Is it a, what, what is it? Or is it just plain old bias, racial bias that is just in the DNA of the country? No, it's not inherent racial bias. It starts out as adrenaline, uh, as, a, as a, a cub reporter who goes out on an assignment and they get the initial report that Breonna Taylor has been shot and her boyfriend shot back. You know, the first draft, as we've often been called the newspaper industry, the first draft of history is to simply report what the cops is, are telling us. And oftentimes that comes with, with a lot, with that, not a lot of perspective. It doesn't come with a lot of context. It simply comes as information. Uh, and so as the day wears on or the week wears on, more resources are poured into explaining what happened here. Uh, just dealing with a case in Columbus, Ohio, uh, where an officer shot and killed an African-American guy uh, just standing in a friend's garage without a lot of questions asked and just blew him away and he didn't even turn on his body cam. Uh, that initial story was slanted in the sense that it erred on the side of what the police were saying. But as we often do, as the day wears on, as the week wears on, more resources are brought in, more context uh, is provided, and a better explanation of what really happened here uh, is ultimately surfaced. And so the resources are there. It's, it, it depends on the level and the magnitude of the story. Uh, but certainly there is no bias with respect to, well, this happened in the black community. We're going to put fewer resources on it versus something that happened in the white community. Got it. Okay. All right. So, so Hollis, final question. And it's a great way to just sum up what's been very, very informative. I mean, the, the disparity and division in the country is palpable. Okay. Nonetheless, for many a broad awareness is emerging in boardrooms, legislative chambers, courtrooms, etc. Equity, that word, is on the tips of many tongues, especially since the events surrounding George Floyd's death. You've been in a position to see how media companies have transitioned and evolved over the last several years. But today, a consumer can read straight reporting like the story you wrote about the Georgia special election. Yet that same consumer can turn on a television or radio to hear a well-paid primetime talking head spew disinformation and claiming the national elections were false. So as consumer of news, what should the public expect from media companies during this era? The, the biggest and, and fastest growing segment of, of audience segmentation in that space, Egbert, is actually podcasts. Uh, Joe Rogan now uh, is the most wealthiest and has the largest audience of, of any podcaster in the country. Uh, and so uh, people... Are you saying larger than mine? 
just slightly, <laughs> maybe maybe only by a couple. <laughs> but 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 the point is, you know, the the media it's become uh, personal in that space where people choose to go to hear what opinions that 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 mesh with what they believe in. And so I do think that there is a broader responsibility with respect to broadcast media and the print media to play it down the middle. But I would urge uh, viewers and listeners to to work a little harder to broaden their horizon. That if if you are a Fox News consumer, uh, go and look at MSNBC. If, if you're MSNBC, go, go take a look at CNBC or Fox or, or Breitbart or Newsmax. All of those are on most cable systems now. Uh, pick up the, the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. You can view it online, uh, which is very conservative. Uh, or pick up uh, the the Wall Street or the Washington Post, rather, which tends to try to call it down the middle. So I think the key would be to uh, increase the number of sources where you're getting information, because as the country remains polarized, people will gravitate to those comfort places, those comfort zones, the Don Lemons of the world, the Jake Tappers of the world, to find reinforcement for their beliefs and opinions. And I think they have to find Wolf Blitzer and uh, Brett Baer in the midst of those opinion leaders to find what's really going on, as well as pick up a variety of newspapers and websites so that they've got a, a broader, a, a, a more worldview, if you will, of what's happening in the country. And when polls are taken and asking people about what's happening in that space, they typically will say they listen to or they watch one particular network. And I think that's contributed to the this deep polarization that's happened in the country. Okay, so I guess I will ask you. I lied. I said it was the last question, but this, this <laughs> it's your is the show. Last you can question. ask as many questions as you like. <laughs> no, but this this is the last question. What should I have asked you that I didn't? You have so much perspective. You have so much to share. Is there anything that I perhaps should have asked you that I didn't? No, you didn't. I, I think the only other thing that I would would have added to that is what's happening in the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, you saw what Apple today announced with a $100 million initiative. Uh, my company has committed to a similar initiative to have each of our newspapers in the 260 markets that we represent to have representative number of reporters and editors that reflect those communities on staff. And so I think there has been a reckoning in the company or in the country rather since the George Floyd killing, since Breonna Taylor's death, that I'm hoping in the Biden administration will uh, end up being on steroids so that we see greater growth in that space. I'm super excited and, and happy to see a lot of people of color getting opportunities and, and, and getting bigger platforms and bigger megaphones, not because of the color of their skin, but because finally corporations recognize that they're qualified and they need to have a workforce that reflects the communities they serve. Fantastic. Hollis, I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate it this time. Um, as I said, it's been a long time since we've seen each other and never forget those early days. And so we're now a little bit, well, I'm gray. You don't have any hair on your head. <laughs> Um, it grows so inward. It grows inward. Uh, I see. Okay. <laughs> so I really appreciate that. And thank you so much for giving us right. your time. Enjoyed every minute of it. Let's, let's stay in touch. All right. Thank you. 
Create the Village is produced by Rick White, directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group, 